Hey, this is Anthony, and I'm the host of What They Did Not Teach You in School, the podcast that interviews people to get their wisdom recorded so that hopefully you could learn some things that are not taught in school, but should be taught in school. I'd like to remind people that a lot of the things talked about on this podcast relate to investing and finance. The purpose of talking about these subjects are to hopefully inform people and educate them on financial literacy and to entertain people with some do's and do nots. This is not to be considered financial advice. Before trying anything that you learn on the podcast, be sure to consult a professional. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today is actually episode 40 of the podcast, and that's kind of like a milestone because it's a nice round number. Mm-hmm. And today we have two special guests on the podcast. Um, I was thinking about bringing on somebody that could talk a little bit about investing from a unique perspective. Um, so I've known Alex Alexander Morsink for how long now? Three, four years? Yeah, probably three, four years, yeah. And I've been following his journey as he co-founded and is now the managing director of Equivesto. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about, obviously, your journey, career path in finance, and um, what you're doing right now in the exempt uh, and private space when yep. it comes to investing. Um, so I thought I'd be great to have him on the podcast because there's very few people that I know um, that have the perspective on investing that you do, especially as a founder yourself. Yeah. So I thought this could be a really cool uh, conversation to talk about the exempt space, building um, uh um, a platform for people to invest alternatively than your normal stocks and bonds. Yeah, basically taking the conversations we've had a few times and just recording it for everyone else. Which are really good conversations. So now that we're finally <laughs> uh, doing that, more people can benefit from them. Right. And the one and only as well that I thought would be a perfect perspective to have on the podcast as well is Kieran McConnell. He's been on, this is your second podcast now. This would be my second, yeah. There you go. So this will become probably a reoccurring thing. We'll see what happens. Yeah, let's see. We've been working together for quite a bit of time on and off, so it it makes sense. Yeah, what I like about having Kieran on the podcast is that obviously his background in economics and physics and and like being in finance is more formal than my own background in finance and economics. But also he comes from, or he is a Gen Zer, so he has that POV of the next generation that is always refreshing for me to have as a POV on things. Yeah, inject some youth into the room. Excellent. Thank you. Before we get started from our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Creator Club. Creator Club is a platform and marketplace that connects creators to brands in order to be able to create content and market at scale. The future of the creator economy is coming and Creator Club wants to be there to be a defining force in that wave. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Crater Club, visit us at Insta- on Instagram, Crater Club Studios, and on our website at craterclubstudios.ca. So let's get started. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey and how you started Equivesto? Um, did you do it right out of school? Did you- no. So um, went to Queen's Commerce, um, studied commerce, obviously, yep. uh, to help focus in finance and marketing. Uh, graduated and immediately went to work at Scotiabank. So I started in corporate banking there, specifically uh, with the financial institutions team on the risk management side. Then um, 
I pivoted and still at Scotiabank, moved to commercial banking, uh, still on the risk management. So basically approving and underwriting loans to small, medium-sized businesses. Mm. And part of the reason for that shift was the idea, the sort of thought behind Equivesto. So I co-founded Equivesto with my best friend and, and roommate from university, Ryan Correa. And it really came out of uh, a need that we saw sort of from both sides. So Ryan, uh, he went to work in consulting after school, uh, but he also started a, a couple startups. And his experience raising capital for those startups was extremely challenging, uh, especially he wasn't uh, white, um, and so he had additional challenges there. And then from my perspective, I wanted to be able to start investing into startups. And then I quickly learned that at the time, the only way to do that was to be an accredited investor, so an individual basically high net worth person with over a million in net financial assets, over 200,000 in income. And I was working my way up in my career to get to that point, but I wasn't at that point. And so we both sort of saw this need to allow greater access for not only companies and diverse founders to raise capital, but also for more people to be able to invest into these early stage companies. So I switched to the commercial side of the bank, um, because it was a good opportunity, but also it gave me a little bit more visibility into some of the funding challenges for mm -hmm. not just startups, but small businesses. And then at the same time, uh, that's sort of when we we started working on Equivesto. And so Equivesto is six years old. Uh, Crazy, at wow. At this point, yeah. Um, Equivesto is an online investment platform uh, for private companies. So we help private companies raise capital from high net worth accredited investors, but also from the general public. So we're also licensed as an equity crowdfunding platform. Interesting. So kind of like uh, Kickstarter, but for companies. Yeah, Kickstarter, but instead of getting, you know, a bicycle that you're going to get in five years or something like that, you actually own a small piece of the company that's making the bicycles is the idea. I love that. Is there, um, you were one of the first to do this in Canada, correct? Yeah, so the... To be able to do something like this, uh, the rules, the securities laws in Canada had to change. So they changed in 2016, right around the time when Ryan and I heard about it and started thinking about creating a business. And there were a number of companies that sort of all launched at that time trying to use the rules. But without going too much down a rabbit hole, essentially securities law in Canada is rather complicated and it's regulated in each province separately. And so the rules that came out in 2016 were so terrible, basically every single company that launched to respond to those 2016 rule changes all failed, except for one or maybe two. The second one kind of pivoted out of the space. So only one really remained. Um, and then we launched um, a few years later. It takes a long time to get licensed to be able to do this. So mm -hmm. our license is an exempt market dealer license which basically means a securities dealer for private companies. And it took us three and a half years to get ready and then actually to get the license approved by the regulators. So by the time we launched, it was all the way in 2020. Um, we launched in September of 2020. And at that time, there was just us and one other company, the, the sort of one that I mentioned from before, in the space. Mm. And uh, what do you think has been the reason why you guys have succeeded all these years? Like six years, that's long. Most companies go out of business before then. Yeah, well, you know, the first the first three and a half years were all pre-revenue. And so the only reason we were able to sort of get to that point was because we made aggressive choices on our end and we had 
you know, been lucky enough to have jobs where we could save up income and everything where we could basically work for free for a number of years. And we were very lucky to be able to raise uh, a friends and family round uh, and a sort of early angel round, very pre-revenue based on the things that we wanted to achieve. So without sort of both of those things, we wouldn't have been able to be successful. And that's, that's ballsy, man. It, it is. How old it, were you at the time when you did that? Uh, 25. Yeah. Wow. Um, to take a risk like that. Yeah. It, it is kind of, it's, it's a lucky kind of scenario. Certainly there's a lot of luck involved in starting a company. Um, but it also sort of speaks to, you know, if I hadn't been able to graduate from business school and get the job in corporate banking and make good money there and then save that up to be able to basically not work for a couple of years Mm. and live off of that. You know, entrepreneurship can often be sort of restricted to people from wealthier backgrounds. And part of it is because you need to be able to have that sort of safety net to take a risk. You Mm -hmm. know, if you're caring for kids and you're working full time, there isn't always space in your life to not work for two years. Yeah, that's Mm. tough. I always think too, like when I first... Uh, started out, I left a very comfy job to mm-hmm. uh, move into a not so comfy job, but for the freedom of being able to start my own company. And right. I made, it was very difficult because I started around 23, 24. Right. So in and around the same year uh, year as you. And it was very difficult to seem like my friends all start make really good money while I was like living at home and barely paying the bills because I had to start my company. Right. right? And not only is it both difficult financially but socially right it's difficult right mm-hmm. yeah es- essentially because i'm sure all your friends at the oh. bank were just getting nicer and nicer jobs fat bonuses and you're like going in the negative well and the thing is as well to be able to have that the funds saved up to be able to not work we kind of had sacrifices right and we sort of had the genesis of the idea sort of a bit earlier before we actually launched it and so during that mm. period you know saving up and everything it's almost like kind of sacrificing your 20s for the rest of your life a little bit, which feels very weird because everyone's like, the 20s are the best time. I I think every (laughs) year can be the best time of your life. You don't have to like self-limit in that way. Um, But certainly everyone else is like, I don't have kids. I'm not married. I'm going out three nights a week or I'm going on all these trips. And you're sort of saying, okay, you know, I make zero dollars right now. And so how much am I putting on my line of credit this month? Right. And how, how many more months do I have to put on my line of credit before everything's gone? Man, if there's someone who understands that, it's me. I have a question. Did you know a lot of people in the startup space when you made that transition out of the corporate world into kind of out into the cold or were you just going at it alone? Um, So obviously it was with my co-founder Ryan, um, Mm. but it's not like we knew, like, and we were well connected in the startup space. I didn't know a bunch of people who had started companies based in Toronto. Obviously now I know a lot of people and a lot of people that I knew back then have since started companies, but at the time I didn't have a ton of connections. So it was sort of going out and then as we were building the company, trying to make connections, meet more people, sort of engage in the community, sort of grow from there. Wow. And also in 2016 is kind of when, that's when you started, you said, right? Yeah. Uh, is when um, uh, the startup community in Toronto really started picking up too. Right. Pre that, there wasn't a lot going on. Right. So that's you saw the community of entrepreneurs grow in Toronto since then. Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. Um, tell me a little bit about your business partner because I love, I, I personally love the uh, conversation surrounding around founder stories mm-hmm. and the teams that founders put together yeah. and those dynamics. And I've seen everything from like things that went completely sideways to the best 
stories. Right. I've, uh, to the best kind of stories. Right. And, you know, you two were best friends, you said, right? Yeah. Like good buddies. Yeah. And that's kind of risky. It, it is. It's definitely risky. And the thing is, you know, we advise a lot of startups right now uh, as part of what we do, helping them raise capital. We do a lot of sort of um, guidance for founders. And so when I talk to founders and people looking for a co-founder, you know, my advice is usually don't necessarily go into business with somebody who's your friend. Don't choose them as a co-founder because they're your friend. And the number one thing you want to look for is emotional and financial stability mm. in a co-founder because starting a business is very, very hard and you will have months or years of challenges and potentially not good either emotionally or financially with the business. So that is a critical thing to to look for. Yeah, um, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what do you mean by um, obviously financial stability? I'd love to just hear more about what you mean by that. Yeah. So starting a business, at, you know, from from my own perspective, I had to not get paid a salary for a number of years. And then when I started paying myself a salary from the business, I paid myself like 35 grand a year, which was not even enough to cover rent in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, and so for that time, having when you choose to start a business, making sure that, okay, you have enough savings and you've taken that time for yourself, but also, you know, okay, what, what can your co-founder endure financially? Like if you're starting a business <laughs> with somebody who has leased an event door and has, is renting a mega mansion and everything <laughs> is dependent on the monthly cash flows, as soon as those go away, that stress is really going to hit on that person. So you want to make sure like, okay, huh. you know, are you willing to give up all the nice creature comforts? No more spas, you no know, more trips, you know, no more fun stuff. I haven't taken a vacation since 2017. Mm -hmm. You know, none of that stuff until this is good. And how long are you willing to do that for? Like, wow. are you willing to do it for three years? What about four? And financially, okay, what's your rent cost? What's your food cost? based on your savings and any debt you have available, how long can you last? A lot of, a lot about entrepreneurship is being able to uh, last the marathon, right? right? Right. And it's difficult to do so if you're, you, you got to be understanding that you're going to make below market uh, rate um, for a, yeah. a significant period of time. Right. Well, I feel like if you're doing it for the money, then you're more likely to tap out in the beginning anyways because you're Good only well. going to want to see the revenue coming in right away. And if it's going to be a deferred gratification kind right. of scenario, you know, you, your mind can't be set on money because yeah. after right. a while, you know, the things that will get you up at the end of the day need to be more purposeful. 100%. Right. Well, and that, that sort of ties into the emotional piece as well because, like, as a founder – when you're going out to raise capital for the first time, you're going to have to talk to maybe 100 or at this point, maybe more like 500 or 1,000 investors before you find anyone to invest. That's a lot of no's. And that's a lot of people saying, I think your idea is crap um, before you finally find the right person. And so you have to be willing to sort of take that and on one side, actually take feedback, know what feedback is good to improve your idea, but on the other side, be willing to have enough belief in yourself and the idea to push through. That's tough. That's tough. I was literally on an investor meeting last night, mm. and I was like, oh, pitching the idea, blah, blah, and I was just like, oh, I haven't done this in a while because I haven't done a startup in like five years. Right. And it just I brought back bad memories, <laughs> bad memories, man. Right. Because of course they're gonna just they're just put poking holes in it, yeah. poking holes in it, right? And then you got to leave that meeting thinking to yourself, okay, 
these very smart people who just absolutely rinsed me in that meeting, yeah. but I'm, but I know I'm right, and I gotta stay, stay with it. Right. It's always a funny interaction looking at like a creative startup entrepreneur try to pitch their idea to someone who's like an investment style accountant, right, or because some kind of P private equity kind of person. Yeah, yeah, because the, the entrepreneur is always just like, wouldn't it be cool if we had this, and then the they have to justify it in like a business model. And that's doesn't always end up working out properly. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to Ryan. So yeah. what would you think makes you two to uh, really work really well together? We balance each other in a lot of great ways. So I am more the sort of like finance, legal structuring side of the business. He's very much the sort of technology marketing side. And so the areas where I am weaker and need help that's where he excels. And the areas where he doesn't have the expertise, that's where I'm really strong. And so it allows us to, like, he's also a managing director of the company. So we have two managing directors, kind of co-CEOs. And I don't have to worry about the stuff he's taking care of. I just know that he's doing it. He's doing a great job. I don't even have to think about it. And so that's why having a a co-founder can be really helpful. You don't want to have like five co-founders. That's a little bit too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm. But two or three uh, can really help and can be very motivating. You know, initially creating the idea and turning your idea into a product, creating your minimum viable product takes a lot of legwork. That's like the hardest stage and that's where you're mostly alone. So having a co-founder who you're accountable to can also really help. Like if it was Mm. just me, I would not have done this. 100% because I would have just been like, ah, screw it. Like I'm just, oh, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out in 2017 (laughs) or whatever. I'm going to play that instead, right? So having a person that you're like, okay, we're meeting next week to discuss what's happening with Ecovesto. I need to do these things. That's really helpful as well. Yeah, holding each other accountable. Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, I want to, I talk a lot about, uh, actually with Kieran as well, about like the future of, um, the investing industry, right. particularly in Canada, and how that has evolved over the years. So we've seen like prior to 2000, people individually bought stocks, yeah. you know, and there were stockbrokers. Right. And then, then it started weighing in during the late 90s to early 2000, mutual funds came out and they became very accessible mm-hmm. and a lot of people started investing in mutual funds, right? right. And that was like the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then around 2006, 2008, ETFs started to become very accessible and right. popular. Then there was like platforms like Wealth Simple and Quest Trade that started coming out because of the um, uh, the emergence of uh, social media and cell phones made it so easy that you could invest on your phone. Right. And of course, people got absolutely fucked up when <laughs> investing in Robinhood and um, these types of trading platforms right. because um, high tides raise all boats. Is that yeah, the- yeah, yeah. So if you're investing on your own during really frothy markets, things go well. Right. And then as soon as those markets start start doing poorly, not so Kaboom. well. And people start learn people learned that the hard way, especially with those trading platforms. Right. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about what you see is coming next when it comes to the financial uh, and investing industry and where do you think it's going to go? And how are you positioning Equivesto to fit into that? Yeah. So I think the most important thing to recognize is every single investment option that you just outlined are all publicly available investments. So when we're thinking about um, companies and sort of how those companies are regulated, there's publicly traded companies. So there's companies that are uh, listed on a stock market, they're trading, um, you know, 
five days a week. You can buy and sell the securities there, and they have all this information that's available and prepared. They're open for investment. And then there's a whole other section of private companies. So private companies aren't publicly traded. So, you know, the small business down the street, that is a private business, but also there's much larger private businesses that are also not listed publicly. And so when you're thinking about investing options, literally every option you mentioned is only in one category of investments because private investments literally were not available to the public. Right. That's where very wealthy people made their money. If you think about Facebook, right? or Google, or Amazon stock, right? Whatever's the Tesla, whatever you name, any of these exciting companies that are really, people are excited about investing in them because they're high growth public companies. Those companies, the the vast majority of money that they made for their investors was when they went, they were private, and when they went from worth nothing to worth, you know, a billion dollars as a private company. When everyone else is excited to get in an IPO of a new business, that's when the wealthy people are getting out. You're picking up the scraps of the billionaires who've made tons of money first, and you're helping them exit their positions. And for the longest time, basically the general public wasn't allowed to play in this earlier area. And, you know, very clear, private companies are considered high-risk investments. They're not medium-risk, they're not low-risk, they're high-risk for a number of reasons, and that's very important to note. So they are not the same level of risk as investing in, you know, um, triple a bond uh type situation but it's an entire area of the market that the general public never had access to and that's where the vast majority of wealth has been created in the history of humanity mm-hmm. if you think about the difference in in the, the in the increase in the wealth gap currently that's all from private companies making a ton of money and then going public mm. and so yeah. that area if you think about all the people being kind of minted as billionaires the vast majority of them are founders of startups, right? Think about the top 10 wealthiest people. They all own the companies that they started um, and they run them and that's why they're in that level. And so what Equivesto is doing and what you know we helped change the rules in Canada to do is to allow the public in smaller amounts because if, if you can cut the pieces small enough, it's okay to take a higher risk if it right. makes sense overall in the balance of your portfolio to take little pieces and participate in this area. It, again, it's high risk. I, I'm registered. I'm licensed. I have to make sure that I'm giving people honest information about the investments. But it's about creating an opportunity for people where they weren't able to participate at all. So what we want to do at Equivesto is change the way all Canadians see investing. So instead of it's stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, it's okay, I'm going to have you know 30% of my portfolio in low risk. So I'm going to do bonds or a bond-based mutual fund. I've got another, you know, 35% in medium risk. So I've got stocks, ETFs, and then I've got maybe 20% or 10% in very high risk investments like private companies, like startups, like private real estate funds. Mm-hmm. And it's not just startups in that area. There's all kinds of, of different things like hedge funds, for example, venture capital funds, private equity funds. Those are all in the private space. If you think about how the mega pension plans make their money, like CPPIB. Or they all have exposure to that kind of stuff. Most of their investments are actually in that space. Mm. Like CPPIB is going to go out, and this is not factual, but I'm you know, assuming they're going to go out and like buy an entire port in some country that's growing, and they'll just own the port for mm. 30 years. That's a private investment. Mm. And so all this sort of 
exciting stuff is going on that nobody else really had the ability to participate in. And so we're trying to like open that door a little bit and allow the general public to be able to participate. Oh, wow. And it's true because uh, you can't even get an 8% rate of return uh, anymore unless you have some kind of private exposure. And with the traditional, it's becoming more and more risky. Like the traditional stock and bond portfolio used to be you can get an 8% rate of return with like a 50-50 split. Now you have to have a little bit more stocks. And now a lot of wealthy individuals, from what I'm seeing in other portfolio companies, need to have that private exposure in order to get that consistent higher rate of return. Right. Like we have, and and I want to highlight, not all private investments are the same levels of risk. Like we have startups raising on our platform that are more sort of like moonshots. So 90% of startups will fail. So you're looking to diversify your investment. And so you want to invest in like five or 10 of them. And then hopefully one or two of them do really well. And that sort of makes up for it. But we also have private funds that are backed by real estate and these kind of things. So they're still private, they're still higher risk, but they are offering consistent annual returns paid as distributions. So actually money Mm -hmm. back into your account, they're TFSA RSP eligible. And they're offering, you know, between 14 and 20% a year and it's real estate backed. So Mm. it's vastly outperforming what you can get in the market. And I'm not saying you should put your entire investment into that. You should not, I will not let you. Um, (laughs) If you use Equivesta, we will stop you, but it's worth considering adding that to your portfolio. We just want to give people more options. I love that. Mm. Um, Tell me a little bit for the people that are now interested. So Mm. uh, there's obviously two markets that you play uh, for or two customer bases. One is the businesses that are trying to raise on the platform and one are the um, everyday retail investors that want to invest in the platform. Talk to me about how or why each of those people, let's start, start with either one that you'd like to, would start interacting with Equivesto and why they would want to. Certainly. So essentially, it's not possible for a member of the general public to invest in a private investment without going through a licensed middleman, essentially. And so Equivesto is an example of one of the licensed middle individuals. We're an exempt market dealer. We're in every province and territory across Canada. And essentially, the our role, the purpose of our license is to vet the private investments and present information factually to investors and then look at the investors, verify who they are, understand their personal financial situation and actually set suitability limits on each person so that they don't accidentally, you know, put it all on Bitcoin uh, or something like that. Um, and this and is like by the government regulated. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we're regulated by the Ontario Securities Commission in Ontario, but every province has its own securities regulator. So we are regulated by all 13 securities regulators across Canada, each one doing their own separate regulation. So that's lots of fun. Interesting. Even like Northwest Territories. Yeah, yeah. Northwest Territories, none of it. Um, it's actually tied into the, I think, the the finance office of the province. But mm. um, yeah, it's quite funny. Our, our approval was delayed up there because they required paper documents, ink signed and mailed to them. Uh, <laughs> everywhere else is obviously, you know, digitally signed and submitted. Welcome but to we, the frontier. We had to, yeah, so we had to, like, and the thing is, our, I'm picturing, like, Alex and Ryan yeah. and, like, no, no. Um, it's obviously it's not not like that. But we had to sign a document, and then we had to mail it to our lawyers in Yukon in mm. Yellowknife, and then they had to sign it, and then they had to mail it to uh, none of it. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So Sorry. Keep going. It's, it's regulated. Okay. Yeah. So so we're basically doing two. We're the gatekeepers essentially of the market. So 
we're not offering investors to people. So companies don't come to us and say, oh, you've got all these investors, I can get a million dollars from you. That's not our service. We are, we are the doorway. So it's like, if you want to be able to allow these types of investors or reach out to your extended community or run in, in a very compliant way advertisements for your raise, we can help you do that. If you want to make it uh, TFSA, RSP eligible, we can help you do that. That's really cool. Um, and then we're doing an entire sort of due diligence process on the company. So I'm also an angel investor, my uh, member of an angel group. And so I go to that group and the company's been sort of initially vetted by the members of the group. But when they pitch, I'm looking at a company's pitch deck and nobody has actually double checked anything in that deck, right? They've, they've given me a pitch deck and I'm like, okay, I'm believing the things you're saying in the pitch deck. I'm believing that the company is incorporated. It does exist. I'm believing that the type of shares you're offering to me are real shares. Mm -hmm. I'm believing all these things that you're saying. Nobody's actually kind of double checking that. It's up to me as the investor to do that. So what we do is the verification side of due diligence. And mm. so I would describe that as the, what the company is saying, we're verifying it. We're not doing a validation necessarily. So the company is like, oh, you know, we want to try to go after this market or like we think this is achievable. We're not doing a competitor analysis and saying these are six other competitors in the space. Like I think you're a worse investment than the other guy. We don't do that. That's to me, the fun part of looking into due diligence on a company. And we don't like pick winners and losers or whatever. That's not what we're in the business to do. Mm -hmm. But we're basically saying, look, if the company is on the platform, we have verified as much as it's possible for us to do that what they're saying is true. And then on the flip side for the investor, we are supposed to do a full and we do complete a full know your customer and suitability assessment for the investors. So if you're going out to invest in early stage companies as an individual and you're not high net worth, you legally can't do it on your own. You have mm -hmm. to come through a platform like ours. And part of the benefit of that is, you know, we're going to ask some personal questions of you. And what that does is that allows us to using our information and our license and anyone who actually is providing investment advice or determining suitability of an investor is also separately licensed. So it's not like Equivesto has one license and we can just do whatever we want. Equivesto, the company has a license, but also our chief compliance officer has to be uh, registered as well. And then anyone who deals with investors and provides advice is also registered again as a dealing representative and they mm -hmm. have to pass exams and all kinds of stuff. So there's all these pieces in place to basically say, okay, you know, you've signed up, I've gone through your sort of personal financial situation, I've looked at these sort of different factors. I don't think you should put more than 30 grand of your investment portfolio into these type of deals. To and be able to like protect them from themselves essentially. 100%, 100%. And, and we, we are, like I am personally legally liable for that. And that's the thing also with exempt market dealers. Normally you have a company, you're shedding the liability, right? So somebody sues the company, or the company goes does something wrong, it's the company's fault, not the employee's. Hmm. With a licensed company like this, the liability is direct. It's to me personally. So like when hmm. you're part of the part of the questions on the exam that you're passing is what are the punishments for doing these things? It's like, okay, this one's uh, seven years jail's time, this one is a fine of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like that kind of a thing. And so that's a lot of pressure on you. Well, I, I built the company. I know exactly 
what we do. I'm looking at and reviewing every decision that we're making with with all you know of the thousands of our investor clients. Every mm. time you know we put a trade through, and we've done you know thousands and thousands of trades on their behalf. All these investments, we are making sure you know this is not a situation like with other startups where you're like, oh, I messed up a couple times, but we'll, we'll figure it out. This is like you can never make a mistake. These are people's <laughs> lives. This is their savings. And it's the most important thing we deal with. So one thing that's kind of that we have to manage as well is the potential conflict there because we're paid by the company, right. but we have to protect the, the investor. And so that's why we have all these policies and procedures and rules and internal governance to manage that entire process. Hmm. We have a legal responsibility to protect the investor and even though the company is paying, that's also to allow the investors to access with as few barriers as possible. We want everyone to have this opportunity and not say, oh, you know, yeah, you can sign up and invest here, but I'm going to take 2% of your entire net worth every year, whether you make any money or not, like some financial advisors do. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not really how we operate. Um, there's no fees that we charge to investors directly. The company pays for sort of the privilege to come on and, and raise. So, um, makes you very so, trustworthy. Yeah. I appreciate that. that. Yeah. This is like, this is like innovative stuff right here. Like, so, okay. So private company wants to go on your platform. Obviously you could check online and figure out your own stuff, but just in general, yeah. um, uh, company wants to list essentially on your platform yeah. and then they can then legally advertise for that raise through social media. Yeah. Or so it, it, it depends on, on compliance and everything. So my compliance side is going to say, okay, you need to talk to us and, and we'll determine what you can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. But speaking generally, generally, yes, a company, if they're raising in a way that is, allows them to raise from the general public, they would be able to notify the broader public about the fact that they're raising through potential ads or, you know, podcasts or, or sort of whatever it is they want to do. They could hmm. do an ad on Instagram notifying people that they might be raising capital. But it can't just be, I'm going to make you 30% return per year, click right, right here, right, right. we're all going to get rich, you know, unicorns <laughs> are us. No, not, none of that. So in a, you give them the guidelines on how they could go about doing that. Yeah, so we give them the guidelines, but every single ad or post or email that they would send to speak to an investor, we have to vet first. Mm. Every social media post that they make, we have to vet. Interesting. Okay, and then on the consumer side, like... If I'm someone looking to diversify my portfolio or right. get a little upside, I can, through my TFSA or RSP, invest fractionally into one of these companies on your platform. Yeah, it's sadly not as simple as we'd like it to be. So you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to use my TD TFSA. You would have to open a new TFSA with a trust company that we work with. Uh, we can help you do all that. Um, and there would be like an annual account fee from that trust company for that. Um, and the company that you're investing in itself would have to have gone through the work to become TFSA RSP eligible. So not every deal is TFSA RSP eligible, but... Mm -hmm. I would say 90 to 95% do go through that. Mm. So yeah, basically you would sign up on Equivesto. You would say, hey, Alex or <laughs> Equivesto team, I want to invest through my RRSP. We'd give you the paperwork while you're making the investment. We'd take care of the transfer from TD to the, the trust company we're working with. And, and there you go. Fascinating. And when you have private investments within a TFSA, my understanding of a TFSA is that if your money grows in the TFSA and then you want to take it out, that adds to your contribution room. Yeah, correct? So yeah, you, with I'm, such high upside potential, you could actually just 
blast yeah. the roof off the ceiling. I, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that because that's one thing that, you know, financial literacy is not, the education is not really there the way it should be. They finally added some in high school, but for all of us who aren't in high school anymore, we're kind of SOL. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with, with the TFSA, your contribution room, the amount you can put into your TFSA goes up every year by the amount given by the government. So it's generally around four grand a year. I think total contribution space since the creation of TFSA is now at around $82,500 or so. Mm -hmm. But any money you withdraw increases your contribution room again. So for example, if you take your 82,000 in your TFSA and you invest in a bunch of stuff and it does really, really well, and now you've got $100,000 in your TFSA, if you withdraw the $100,000 from your TFSA, your contribution room the next year, the following calendar year, goes up by whatever you have withdrawn. So if... It would be now $100,000 that you yeah. could put in. Exactly. <laughs> or let's say, you know, you, you've got your, your TFSA, you've made some money in it already, so now you've got maybe like 100000 in your TFSA, and you're like, okay, other things, like my RSP, I'm going to use for my middle risk stuff, but my TFSA I'm going to use just for higher risk stuff. I'm going to put fifty grand into much higher potential returning investments. So I'm going to do you know, maybe some of these um, real estate uh, funds that are providing 20% annual return. I'm going to do a couple startups, and one of the startups goes bananas. So you, you invested like $15,000 from your TFSA in the startup. The startup goes huge. Your investment is now worth a million dollars. You have a million dollars tax-free, and your TFSA the next year has contribution room of a million dollars. And so if you manage that properly then you could potentially have your entire investment portfolio eventually inside In a, TFSA. a TFSA and Crazy. pay no <laughs> capital gains or, or anything like that. So for those listening at home, that's extremely unlikely, but yes. more and more and more possible with the emergence of platforms like this because the ultra net worth uh, the ultra high net worth individuals out there, they play in this world. Yeah. They do this kind of thing where they, every single year, they invest 50K in 10 different companies and they keep doing that. And one of them pops off eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like, if you look at how ultra high net worth people are doing this, they're like, again, you know, only, you know, 10 or 20% of the companies will be successful. So you want to invest in, like, if you're investing in 10, only two will work out. They're investing 50K in all 10. So they're they're spending, you know, $500,000 a year on these types of investments. Mm -hmm. We don't have the cash flow for that us regular people. And so being able to say you can invest $100 or $500 or $1,000 makes it way more accessible to to people to to participate. But yeah, that's that's how a lot of the the wealth is really being generated. Um that that sort of thing. I want to shift gears a bit here, and yeah. I want to talk about. You see a lot of startups, yeah, hundreds, uh, yeah, thousands. Um, what do you? What are some characteristics of the ones that you see now that you've developed pattern recognition from all of this yeah. repetition? Um, what are some characteristics that you see of the successful ones versus the ones that you're like, this one has no chance? Yeah, well, and it, and here's the thing, like, the the key is okay. Do you actually have a good idea that can can do well, that will make money and, and be successful. There's three core risks like that are that exist for any startup, and they're tied to the different stages of the company. There's mm -hmm. there's hundreds of other smaller risks that companies will have that are unique to, to them, but every startup has basically 
The first risk is, can they even create the product that they plan on selling? Can they make a good product? The second risk is, can and will this product be well accepted by the market? Can they find product market fit? And then the final risk is, can they scale? Is this the right team? And is this, is this product scalable so that they can make really strong returns from this? Those well are the put. three yeah. core challenges of any startup. And so anything the startup founders can do to minimize those risks will make them more likely to be successful and more likely to receive investment. I'll give you an example. You're a pre-revenue company and you're looking to raise money. Because of that, let's say you have completed an MVP. So risk number one, can you build a product? Finished. You've, you've, you've done it. There's no risk anymore because you've built the product. It's right there. You still have, will the market accept your product? Will you find product market fit? And can you scale it? So you can minimize the risk from an investor perspective around the product market fit piece by going out, interviewing a thousand potential customers and seeing if they're interested in what you're doing and then adding them to a wait list. So you're going out mm. to an investor and you're like, okay, I'm pre-revenue and we, we haven't gotten to revenue yet because we're putting the final finishing touches, whatever, whatever. We'll start generating revenue in six months. Here is a list of 75 companies that have agreed to pay us the fee that we're going to charge for our product when we launch. They're waiting for us to launch. Now you have removed that risk. And everything I just described there costs nothing, absolutely nothing, to message people on LinkedIn and say, hey, I'm creating a, a startup that might be solving something in your industry. Can I give you, you know, a $20 Starbucks gift card to get on the phone with me for 30 minutes? I'd love to get your feedback. You're not coming in being like, invest in my startup, give me money. Right. You're saying... Would you I'm be trying interested? To, I'm trying to solve a problem that I think affects you. Can I have 30 minutes of your time? That's it. And you just do that a thousand times. Mm. It sucks. But that, <laughs> that creates the data and also builds a customer pipeline. Mm. And then a really good way to show that you can scale the business is building a strong advisory board, a strong group of people who, okay, even if I or my co-founder don't have the skills in this area, maybe I'm not a sales guru. I have the head of sales of LinkedIn on my advisory board. And all you have to do is find people who you think would be amazing to have on your advisory board and just message them and say, hey, I'm running a startup. Could you give me advice for 30 minutes? If that goes well and you have a good back and forth conversation, you thank them and say, would you mind if I asked you for advice again in a month mm. for just 30 minutes? And you do that one or two times, then you can say, hey, would you be willing to join my advisory board? And you just make an advisory board of really awesome people that will help you make those connections. All of this is free. I've spent zero dollars. I've just spent my time. But I have built basically all the things that show investors that I have what it takes to really drive this business forward. It's not just about everybody wants to buy my widget. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. Good. Because <laughs> you do see some of those. Uh, I've had some people pitch me on like uh, investment products or I mean right. investments and uh, they're pre-MVP, they just have mm -hmm. like an idea kind of thing, right? right? Well, and That's all the risks, all three risks all that three you mentioned 100%. are there, right? Well, and here, this is the biggest challenge with entrepreneurship, and this is a, a tough reality. When you're facing all three risks, including can they build the product, an investor who doesn't know you will almost never agree to those risks. And so for that reason, entrepreneurship is normally gated to individuals who either have wealth themselves or have a wealthy 
family and friends connection who will invest based on their personality, who they are, because that's all you can bet on at that point, the founder. So then you've mentioned that a couple times, right? Do you see that's a big problem? Do you have any like ideas on how that gets better? No, Uh, sadly, I don't. And the problem is we've created a platform that's about creating equitable and easy access to investment. We're not letting you on if you don't have an MVP because the risk is too high for the public. Mm-hmm. The problem is, and this is the really challenging part, so many people have great ideas. Like I'm sure everyone's ideas, if they have an idea for a startup, it's a great idea. I'm not trashing anyone's ideas. It's can you actually turn that idea into something? And if mm. you say, I just need a million dollars to turn my idea into something, that can't be a barrier. You have to find another way to make it without needing somebody's money. You mm-hmm. need a technical co-founder who will build it for free in their free time. You need something else. But there are people out there and who have fantastic ideas, but because you know they, they have kids and they have to work, they're a single parent, they don't have the time to do that. And there isn't a way that's safe for investors for people to back them at that early stage Mm because when i'm talking about 90 percent of startups failing i'm talking about companies that have built the product and are trying to go to market i'm not talking about how many people with great ideas who didn't start it Mm. because then it's like 99 (laughs) percent and what i would add to that is that i think you can move forward with like a minimum viable product or service and just sort of test the waters a little bit like we uh i won't go too into what the idea was but uh me and one of my best friends we had a interesting idea and the capex to start it would like for a minimum viable product would maybe be like ten thousand dollars something like that we could have paid that on our own but we wanted to see whether or not it would be useful so we walked it it was like a fashion idea so we walked into the fashion district went mm-hmm. into a bunch of different stores did exactly what you said talked to them for about 10 15 minutes we're like is this a problem that you want to see solved right and they were like in theory, yeah, but like not for like another five years. We were like, okay, well, we're just going to shelf this right. for mm. now. Right. That's uh, a good idea. You probably saved yourself a lot of time and heart- heartache. Yeah, and $10,000. But even still, <laughs> um, our approach was going to be that we would just like buy the minimum viable capital right. products that we needed to do some sort of service and then see if we can go from there. Right. Um, rather than just putting a big idea on a table and then hoping somebody gives you like multitudes of thousands of dollars. Right. And, and, and that's totally right. You should build the minimum viable product first. The first thing you can do to get sales, even if, you know, the front of it looks great and the back is actually just you in your bedroom putting things in boxes. If you're shipping product, you're just doing it yourself. That's enough. Um, just showing that you can actually deliver on what you're trying to do is the first step. Yeah. Um, a big thing right now is on uh, the VC world yep. um, where let's say like, I forget what the actual timeline would be. Let's say 2004 to 2009, people were just throwing monies at ideas. Mm-hmm. You have an idea, here's a million dollars. That was the VC world back then. Then it got a little bit more complicated during the, t- the 2010s, just like you were saying, strong founders, they have to have a decent product already, maybe some revenue or proof of product market fit, then founders or um, VCs are getting in, right? Mm-hmm. And valuations got crazy the last like five years. Right. But now there's that sentiment in the market that VCs are really pulling back and becoming more conservative. And the valuations that a lot of startups were getting pre-pandemic are not there right now. You want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing and is this true? Um, and why do you think that's the case? Yeah, so I'll I'll start by saying yes, it's I think it's definitely true. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about sort of why that is. But essentially, um, you know, the 
the VC market also, I'll note, in, is different in Canada than it is in the United States. So in the United States, what is a valuation of a seed company or a Series A company is totally different than the valuation of a seed company or a Series A company in Canada. Furthermore, what even is the definition of a seed company or Series A company? Does anyone ever have that? Because the different people that I talk to have different definitions. Yeah, I, I, we, we post them on in the Equivestal Learning Center. We have all the all the definitions, oh, for like great. U.S. Okay. versus Canada and, and everything like that. But what's yeah, the major differences between the countries? Basically, Canada is one step behind the U.S. So in the U.S., what they consider to be a like a seed company is actually like. Canada, you have to be further. So a, a Series A company in Canada is actually a seed company in the U.S. Because is the that US, just because markets are bigger? The U.S. market is bigger, like this big ballooning effect and everything, where people getting you know million dollars off of a pitch deck. That's um, that's the U.S. market, and so part of the challenge is all the writing that we're reading, you know, Crunchbase, whatever, that's all the U.S. market too. So founders are reading. They're like, oh my god, so many unicorns got minted last month. That's all. That's mostly <laughs> U.S. companies, and so you're sitting here being like, "I'm pitching VCs," and they're saying like, "No, like I, my valuation is way too high." But on Crunchbase, everybody's worth this. It's because people who ha- who are willing to invest at those valuations are in the U.S. Mm. So in Canada, you know, I would say like a seed stage company is going to be maybe between like a five and ten million valuation, and a Series A is going to be you know, between a 15 to $20 million valuation Canadian dollars currently. In the US, you can raise a seed round for a company that has 15 to 20 million US valuation if mm. it's a good enough company right now. And that's with va- that's with valuations getting pushed downwards. But Talk to me a little bit about that. Why are valuations getting pushed down? Yeah, basically it's a, I don't want to confuse this with trickle-down economics because it's nothing to do with that, but it's trickle-down from, from private equity, right? So- VCs, any anyone who's professionally investing in startups, they're doing it to make money for their underlying investors, and they make money for those investors by exiting, by selling. And so they basically want to invest in a company, help it grow for five years or seven years, and have that company exit. And by exit, it's either the company's getting acquired or it's going public. So if we think about the public markets, they just got depressed significantly. So all of the private equity firms that were about to take companies public said, no, we're not doing it now. We're waiting. Valuations are way down. So we're not buying any new companies because we've still got these companies and their valuations are worth half as much. So we're not going out to buy anybody else. So then the companies that invest in companies that already have VC capital but aren't yet private equity go public stage, they're like, well, nobody's buying our companies. No, the private equity firms that take people public are buying ours, so we're going to wait, and our valuations are worth less. Mm. And then the VCs that are looking for other people to sort of invest in the companies they've already backed and validate their choices, they're all saying, oh, nobody's investing in our company. Oh, let's just slow down, you know, stuff's worth less. And so it just slowly makes its way lower. Mm. The thing is, because valuations in Canada were always lower than they were in the US, so like three, four years ago where people were like, like, yeah, you walk in with a pitch deck and you get a million dollars and your valuation is like $50 million off of nothing. That would never happen in Canada. So in terms of the aggressive revision on valuation, like if you raised from the US, like if you raised VC money from the US last year, your valuation's getting like halved, if not like a third. And it's going to hurt, but it's worth it to save the company. But 
if you've been raising in Canada, maybe your valuation is going to drop like 20% because we didn't have that mm. sort of ballooning effect. But they as were, much. but they were conservative from the beginning anyway. Canada has always been more fiscally conservative than the U S for yeah. sure. So if you're Canadian, should you go to the U S to raise money? Here's the thing. Um, not necessarily. It all depends on your stage and your fit and, and really like the way you can connect with U S investors. Most companies that want to raise from the U.S., that means booking a plane ticket to Silicon Valley and somehow getting meetings with these VCs that you never met. Raising in Canada from Canadian investors who understand you is usually a better choice. You don't want to start getting U.S. capital until you're a later stage business. Hmm. It's just part of the reality of things. I think the biggest change that's really going to affect Canadian startups is angel investors, individuals who invest before VCs get involved, angel investors in Canada are typically now wanting to see post-revenue companies. So normally, you'd have an MVP and you'd be pre-revenue, and that's when you would raise from angels. And as an angel myself, attending angel meetings, the demand from angels, given the slightly increased risk and the the fluctuations of the market, is we want to see revenue now. And so what that means is for companies that are pre-revenue, there's there's fewer angels who are willing to fund you pre-revenue so you got to do like either self-fund family round or use like small business loans and stuff at that stage yeah well and i i would just be cautious with the small business loans thing um because usually those need to be asset backed and like all kinds of stuff so yeah that's a situation where you'd want to do family and friends or consider if you have a big enough community you would consider equity crowdfunding oh there you go that's a good point Plug myself yeah there you are that's a good point yes um, okay, so rapid fire, we're going to wrap up in like 10 minutes from now, quick rapid fire. I just want your thoughts on these topics. Yep. Okay, Kieran, feel free to jump in. I'd love to know your thoughts as well. Um, FTX, you guys familiar with this? Yes. <laughs> what happened there? Because oh, that God. guy was like yeah, I'll, I'll the keep... legend. That guy was the legend. Well, uh, so... <laughs> Do you, do you want to go? You know first? how I just talked about selling your product before you have a product? Mm. That jacked up to like 11. So here's the thing with, with FTX or any cryptocurrency platform, right? Everyone thinks, oh, crypto is not regulated. It's separate from the markets. That's incorrect. Cryptocurrency is a private investment. And trading in cryptocurrency actually requires the same securities license that we have. Mm. So FTX did not get that license in Canada. And you, just as a clarification on securities law, technically, if you want to take money from an investor, you need to be licensed where the investor lives. Mm. doesn't matter that I'm a Canadian platform and I'm helping a Canadian company. I cannot take money from an American. I need to be licensed in America to take money from an American. So basically, the securities regulators came out two years ago now and went to all the crypto platforms in Canada and said, hey, none of you are regulated. Get out or get regulated. You're all breaking the law, every single one of you. And a bunch of them, pretty much 90% of them left because the amount of regulation required to have the license we have is very huge. It's it's a lot of work. So most of them left. Um, there's a few that got regulated. For example, Wealth Symbol Crypto, they got regulated. But FTX should have been would and would legally be required to be regulated in every country that they're operating in. Mm. It doesn't matter that they're headquarters in, in Bahamas. That doesn't matter at all. They would need to be licensed in the United States. So actually, they should have been shut down by the SEC, by the OSC, by Why everyone. didn't they? Because we don't have enough capital dedicated to punishing bad actors in the financial services space. Uh. Like, 
every cryptocurrency platform that's trading, almost every single one is operating illegally in at least one jurisdiction, except for Wellsimple Crypto and like two others in Canada that are licensed. Pretty much everybody is actually breaking the law. But there's just so many of them that we can't like go and police them all. Well, and like, yeah, it's so much effort. And I'll, I'll give you an example, like signing up on Equivesto, you have to sign a, sign three different times that says you acknowledge it's very high risk and you could lose every dollar you're putting through the platform. You've also had to tell me how much money you made last year, what's your net worth, how many kids you have, where you work. In, and we don't take credit card. We're doing a funds transfer from your bank account, whatever. And that's an easy five-minute online process. But can you imagine how many people would have invested in crypto if they had to do that first? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't. They a wouldn't. lot of people wouldn't have. Right. Yeah. Like people are over here being like, I don't want to invest in stocks. It's too high risk. I don't want to invest in Tesla. It's too high risk. Let me put 50 grand in crypto. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're yeah, like, right, I just right. made so much money. Crypt like the value of anything is how much somebody's <laughs> willing to pay it to buy from you. Right. And yeah, yeah. I, my personal opinion on crypto is not necessarily relevant. I'll just say individuals technically and companies needed to be licensed and none of them were. Mm hmm. Okay. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, he got up on that and he's been getting a lot of backlash on social media and shit. Thoughts on that? Like that's, that's the thing. Like, okay. Obviously it's a, like he committed, not Kevin O'Leary, but the Sam, whatever, Bankman fraud, whatever his name is. (laughs) Um, anyway, um, the amount of fraud that he did is absolutely massive, but like starting point is with startups, you're investing in a startup because you want it to be disruptive. But at the same time, it needs to be able to pass mustard in the in the industry that it wants to operate. For example, if a company wanted to raise capital as like a real estate brokerage platform and they didn't have a real estate brokerage license, we would not let them on our platform. And as an investor, I would not invest in that because I'd look at it and I'd say, this is illegal I'm not investing in you. Some investors are trying to be ahead of the curve and say, this is illegal right now. I know it's illegal, but I'm going to invest in it anyways and hope that you get so big that you bully the market into changing the law. Mm -hmm. And that's a different play. And then other people are investing because, oh, this is the hype deal. Everybody's getting in on this. I want to get in too. Including Tom Brady. (laughs) <laughs> I'm obviously no Tom comment. Brady's, Tom no Brady's comment. not investing was, on his own, right? He has a whole, he's so wealthy. He's got a whole team of people who are helping manage his money and getting him access to these kind of private deals. And with anything like this, you're taking a chance. And part of the reason why we do such intensive due diligence is to try to check these kind of things and make sure that stuff doesn't happen to investors through our platform. Well, one of the things that was interesting about, to talk about Tom Brady, one of the things that was interesting about the whole retail investing environment over the past two years, and I remember we were talking about this, uh, we were talking about this about two years ago, the whole like media ecosystem, like someone could like Tom Brady could be like, oh, I'm putting money here. Just you don't have to invoke, but just saying, and all of a sudden the (laughs) asset price would inflate because you just have all this money going into it from everybody's phones on like a very fractional and incremental level. The perfect example of that is Elon Musk tweeting, oh, Saudi's going to buy Tesla. The deal's (laughs) done and the stock price rockets. It's Mm -hmm. like, see, technically that's market manipulation. That's also illegal. Again, it's, there's not enough enforcement. Like there's so many potential bad actors in the space and there's just, it's like whack-a-mole, right? It's hard to get them all. Um, what are your thoughts on ChatGPT right now? Early stage, any thoughts on that? You bullish on it? You think it's good for the world? 
I think it's interesting. Obviously, finally getting good enough, you know, machine learning quasi AI to actually be able to write that sounds like a human. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. There's a lot of applications for that. Um, I, I see it as an example of more and more industries being replaced by automation and therefore consolidating wealth among fewer and fewer individuals. And so the only way to keep pace is to own the companies. And so that's why we do what we do to allow you to own some of these new technologies. Um, uh-huh. But it's, you know, if you think about where things are going, eventually it's just whoever owns the technology is going to be wealthy and everyone yeah. else won't have a job. I'm not as afraid of it as a lot of people are um, because I know that it's drawing from a large data set and behaving in a way that mimics human insight. And I know that there's a fundamental difference between that and actual human insight where instead of looking at the past data set, you're kind of like extrapolating the next data points, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, So as long as you kind of stay in that domain and you're not just someone who's kind of summarizing copyright for a living, uh, shouldn't be too much of a threat. But I think there are a lot of people that are kind of like in the middle of a supply chain of of, uh, talking and putting together kind of documents. If you're in that kind of realm, then it could be somewhat concerning or it could be liberating. It depends on how you view it. I love that. That's a good point. Um, Okay, what couple books that you guys are reading right now? I love throwing that in there. Mm. And why? Well, the not necessarily that I'm reading right now, but two books that I'd highly recommend to any anyone who's sort of interested in them. So the first from a startup founder or investor perspective would be Venture Deals. Um, it's basically required reading for anyone who's looking to raise capital from venture capital or anything like that. I don't remember if you were the one that recommended that to me or if I saw it online, but mm-hmm. I'm reading I'm rereading that right now. Yeah, it's it's a it's really important. It's not that long. Put on audiobook, go to the gym, whatever. Um, definitely worth worth reading. Uh, and then I always like Sapiens, um, sort of just talking about humans and sort of how we got here. Um, our mentality and how we think about the problems that we solve and connect with, with others is a, is a critical part of how we see our reality. And so um, that book is, I enjoyed that. How about you, Kieran? Well, I'm more of a marketing guy, so I got, <laughs> I got, I got two books. Uh, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. I've read it probably about four times, but mm. it's, it's something that you really want to almost like memorize like it's canon. Uh, so I'm just always kind of have that on my bedside or on my desk which are the same thing at this point. Uh, just kind of looking at the different terms, reading a few chapters, on really understanding uh, kind of the principles behind at the psychology of marketing. Um, and then on top of that, there's one that I'm about to finish called The Story Factor, which basically just lists out eight different principles for packaging anything that you want to do within a story. Um, mm. For the purpose of business or not or otherwise, it just sort of explains the mechanics of storytelling. And one of my biggest takeaways is that when you're meeting anybody new, uh, the first thing they want to know is, who are you? Why are you here? What do you want from me? What do I get out of it? Right. And the better you can package that, the answer to those questions in a comprehensive, engaging story from the get-go, right. the more likely they're going to be engaged with you for everything else that comes after that. So I love that. Um, I'm going to go two more questions, okay? Mm. Can you share with us a time that you had to make a tough decision as an entrepreneur what was the outcome? How did you get through that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's lots of different challenging decisions people have to make uh, as entrepreneurs. Um, without going necessarily too, too much into it, when we were building the company and, and sort of working on getting uh, our license together, um, we had some challenges uh, on the compliance side, and we ended up 
um, put you sort of put us on the back foot, and we had to change chief compliance officers in the in the middle of the process, um, and that was very challenging to navigate. Uh, you know, trying to make sure we were properly rem- representing ourselves to the regulators because we're out here sort of asking for approval and license to operate, and then at the same time, sort of protecting the company and you know removing. Uh, our previous chief compliance officer and, and finding a new one uh, to be able to sort of keep the business going. Um, that was uh, certainly an interesting time. How did you get through it? Like, um, what do you think were the, some of the key things that helped you get through that challenging time? Yeah, I think I think for me, um, I am very lucky that if I just sort of decide that I'm going to do something, I am able to keep on it and sort of remain consistent with that. And so with Equivesto and sort of getting through that point and getting the license, we had already raised capital from friends and family and from angel investors at that point. And so it was very much a situation of like, well, I've taken all this money from people who I respect massively. I've put a ton of my own time and effort and money into this. Like having this end up being successful is not an option. This has been a big challenge. This is a huge setback. You know, we we made mistakes here, but we have to keep going. So like, what can we fix here like there's no quitting is not an option kind of a thing cool i love that all right last question i've asked this to everyone on the podcast thus far and i think it's really useful advice and it surrounds around the concept of wisdom being that you could learn things in different ways one is through like um learning the theory or formality of things through like a book or a course or something one is learning through experience and one is learning through other people's experience Mm. um but sometimes the thing that smacks you on the head the most is that learning from your own experience kind of thing right um what's one piece of knowledge that you wish you knew much sooner Mm. how to empathize with others (laughs) i think that is the absolute biggest thing that you know I, for whatever reason, didn't actually learn that growing up. I thought I was empathizing, but what I was actually doing is just sort of sympathizing, but not actually listening to the other person, understanding and actually knowing how to conceptualize for myself what they were going through um, and learning, taking the time to sort of change how my own brain works and learn how to empathize and become a better listener um, a better empathizer, in, in my opinion, a better person who can do that really changed my ability to run my business, to manage employees, to maintain personal relationships, the most important critical change I've ever made in my life. So any that, tips for someone learning? Mm, like, how did you do that? Yeah, it took a number of years. Uh, but essentially, it's very scary and frightening because if you haven't really done that and you haven't done that self-reflection, most of your life you've probably been making decisions without really deep, deep down knowing why. And you're probably feeling terrified of actually checking because deep down you're worried that you don't actually like the person you've become. And so it can be very scary to Mm -hmm. sort of open the hood and look within. Um, But, you know, no time like the present. So... If you just get started now, um, it'll be worth it in the end. Any books, recos? Like, how did you do it, like, practically speaking? Uh, yeah, I, it, I more, didn't have more any. Intra, more intra-personal uh, work? Yeah. Knowing was, thyself? Yeah, it was really just sort of, like, introspection kind of stuff and asking, basically asking myself why I do different things. So, okay, 
you know, why do I choose to wear this suit? Or like, why did I buy the car that I have? Or why do I live where I live? Or why do I do these things? And not saying, oh, because I like that car, but saying like, okay, you know, maybe I bought this car because I like the way that it makes me feel. But why does it make me feel this way? What about it makes me feel that? And mm. like, what is this feel? And like, it's mm. a long rabbit hole. Or you can just pay a lot of money for therapy. But I didn't have money for that. <laughs> so I did it myself. Kieran, but, you want to answer that? Well, I'll just piggyback off of what you said. Um, I, My default, actually, is kind of to have that like empathetic, mm. kind of overly Lucky understanding you. why I do things yeah. or why other people do things. And I actually need to kind of pull myself out of that and like mm. don't let th things like rejection kind of stop you from acting. Don't right. let overthinking things stop you from acting. Right. Um, so I wish that I knew to kind of like take things aside and not overthink everything right. completely um, a little sooner. Um, I think a lot of people around me who I would describe as like doers who don't really think, they just kind of act, uh, kind of pulled me out of that and taught me how to kind of go about doing that. So it was really just a way of... Uh, my remedy for it is not like books or anything. It's it's finding people who are kind of out doing things and acting and mm. kind of giving you the perspective that if you want to do something, just do it. You don't need to overanalyze why you want to do it. You don't need to overanalyze why you have this car. You just like it. You want to do these things. And it's better than sitting there kind of paralyzed by analysis, right? Right. Gents, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. Alex, you're amazing. We should do this again sometime. Yeah. Okay. It's been great. Thank we you for having me. We have lots more episodes coming out, so we'll definitely won't be the last time seeing you. Kieran, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you very much. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> One of these. Thank you. For those listening at home, thank you so much for listening this far into the podcast. Until next time, 